0: Hello and welcome to New Books in History. Uh, I'm your host, Christina Fryer. And today we're speaking with Anthony Petro, author of the book, After the Wrath of God, AIDS, Sexuality, and American Religion, published by Oxford University Press in 2015. Anthony, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So uh, I want to start by asking you uh, how you became a historian of religion.
1: Yeah, so I started off, I studied religious studies and anthropology at Georgia State University, and I did my master's degree in the social sciences at University of Chicago, uh, where I wound up taking more courses in the divinity school there, which is where religious studies is housed. And I started focusing on religion in the U.S. And so when I started looking at doctoral programs, um, I decided to focus on religion in the United States. and. I landed in Princeton, which is um, a a very good program for studying the history and culture of religion in the U.S. And I became quite interested in looking at religion in America, both um, uh, anthropologically. So thinking about people who are working in uh, the ethnographic mode or in what what in religious studies we sometimes call lived religion. But in this field, the the split between ethnography or lived religion and history um, is uh, very porous. And so our training takes us back to colonial North America um, and traces this history all the way to the present. And I uh, was quite excited about that sort of long historical approach to thinking about Religion in the U.S. and so even though my my current work only goes back to the 1980s, um, so it's not historical by some standards, perhaps. Although as we get a little older, it's 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 looking more and more like history. Um, My training looks at the history of of religion in North America from um uh from from the 1400s forward.
0: And by my standards, uh, the 1980s is history, so I'm happy (laughs) happy to roll with that. Um, So uh, what brought you to this project? And I should just tell listeners, uh, Anthony and I went to graduate school together, so I have seen this project uh, from its beginning, uh, which is why I'm really excited to to talk with you about it today. Um, But so for all of those who do not know you, uh, what brought you to this particular project?
1: Yes, so I first got the spark for this idea um, when I went to a talk in Atlanta uh, before I started graduate school at Princeton um, where the documentary filmmaker Greg Bordowitz was screening one of his films and it featured a man talking about how his faith had helped him in social justice movements um, and in the struggle to fight against AIDS and it was one of those moments where I, I realized I just really never thought of the AIDS crisis as having a religious history. It's just one of those moments where I realized I knew nothing about this at all. Um, and and uh, I thought it was fascinating, and I was quite interested originally in sort of progressive religious responses to the AIDS crisis in particular, how this particular man um, remained within his congregation even as he was an AIDS activist and, and a person with AIDS. And I just found it fascinating. I knew nothing about it. And when I started to sort of look at the scholarship, there's, there was very little about it. And so it was really this absence that brought me to, to the project.
0: So what is it about a religious studies approach um, that you think adds to our understanding of HIV AIDS?
1: Yeah, so most of the work on the history of the AIDS crisis uh, in the US um, that has talked about religion has focused very much on political conservatives within the Christian right, right? So they focused on the sort of culture wars dichotomy that's interested in the rise of the religious right. People like Jerry Falwell with the moral majority, um, who were, were quite public in their claims that AIDS was the wrath of God for sexual, uh, 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 uh sexual immorality. Um, and and that, was, that, that, that was that line was quite common both in media discourse and was picked up in most studies of the AIDS crisis. And that was really kind of all you heard about religion. So what religious studies as an approach does is it tries to think about religion um, in a much more, more capacious sense, right? Mm-hmm. So sometimes within modern American history especially, we only talk about religion when we talk about either the civil rights movement, and that's good religion, or... Or with the Christian right, and that's bad religion, it's politics. And religious studies tries to hold open how it is that we think about religion and what it is that religion does. So in approaching religion and the AIDS crisis, one of the first questions we start off with is how is the AIDS crisis what we would call a theodicy or a question about how do we deal with suffering and evil in the world, right? This is a fundamentally religious question, but it's a question that so many people um, who are dealing with AIDS in the 1980s and 1990s were thinking about, right? Is this a punishment? You know, um, how do we think about the relationship between uh, a disease like this and, you know, sinful behavior or behavior that's been deemed sinful, uh, you know, through hundreds of years of Christian theology? And so a religious studies approach just tries to open up the ways in which we might think about religion in this movement. so, so religion isn't just a political force uh, but it's also a force that is defining um, sexuality it's, it's defining a particular medical and moral problem uh, uh, and it's defining the ways that people make sense and understand of this problem.
0: So you describe AIDS as a moral epidemic and I think that very much connects with what you've just been uh, des- what you've just been describing. Uh, what do you mean by moral epidemic?
1: Yeah, so there's really, really great scholarship on the AIDS crisis that has done a lot of work to think about it not only as a biomedical epidemic, uh, but also as a political one, right? So that from the beginning, the AIDS crisis was a political crisis. It was motivated, uh, or at least the sort of early research around AIDS or particularly the resistance to doing research or funding AIDS research had a lot to do with politics. And even if you look at the early namings of what eventually becomes AIDS. It's, it's originally named GRID uh, for Gay-Related Immune Deficiency. So it was, it was from the very beginning connected initially to gay men. And indeed, the politics of AIDS uh, is important when we think about the history of the AIDS crisis because um, in many ways, you know, first of all, AIDS, uh, uh, the, the disease, HIV, that causes AIDS um, has been in the U.S., For quite a long time, certainly before it was first pinpointed by the CDC in 1981, but it was mostly among IV drug users who were mostly homeless or had little access uh, to uh, medicine or to the organized political channels that gay men had, had, had access to. So, in some ways, it was the very privilege of gay men's access to healthcare and to organizations that, uh, that allowed scientists to sort of see this as something um, that they could put together as a kind of crisis. Um, so it emerges politically. Um, and I try to argue that from the beginning, it's also a religious and a moral crisis. That is to say that from the beginning, it, 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 it is a disease in which people have not only talked about what it means to have the disease, but people have questioned why it is that people got this disease. And from the beginning, there has been an economy of sort of innocence and guilt through which, uh, people with HIV and AIDS have been, um, described, discussed in media and elsewhere. Um, and for a disease that is so, uh, uh, intimately connected to sexuality, it's very hard to disentangle the morality of sexuality um, from uh, the disease itself.
0: Right. So um, would you say that religious ideas were particularly influential in, in crafting a- a- HIV AIDS as a moral epidemic?
1: Certainly it was. And you see this both in the sense of, of early, mostly conservative religious groups talking about it as punishment for sinful behavior, right? So thinking about longer histories of the way that Christians have thought about the category of sodomy. Um, uh, uh, uh but even earlier than that in in some of the earliest medical discourse about the aids crisis um we see a number of ways in which people were trying to make sense of it um sometimes that had to do with ideas of the christian category of sinfulness or blame um and we have to remember in the early 1980s you know to talk about gay men or to talk about homosexuality was still very rare I mean it wasn't something the New York Times um, rarely discussed gay men they and, and and for much of their early coverage of the AIDS crisis they would never use the term gay they used this sort of more clinical language of, of homosexuals mm-hmm. right and, and and a lot of them avoided even talking about this disease because um, uh, 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 issues of gay and lesbian life just weren't talked about in mainstream media like like this and a lot of medical doctors just didn't want to touch it for 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 this very reason. Um, but some of the earliest accounts, uh, or the earliest theories also connected it to voodoo mm. in, in Haiti. So this sort of, you know, uh, religious practices that were considered aberrational. Um, so from its earliest beginnings, um, and then its connections also, of course, to mm. Africa, it was sort of connected to aberrational or, uh, Uh, what people viewed as sort of um, aberrations in religious practices, um, and then the language of sodomy. That really does come to saturate the way that people talk about AIDS in the 1980s in the U.S., whether they're Christian or not.
0: Okay. So um, for, I mean, I I suspect many uh, listeners will uh, have a general sense of AIDS in the 1980s, but um, to, to refresh our memory, can you give us a rough chronology of uh, the, the HIV-AIDS crisis in what you call the long
1: 1980s? Sure. So the CDC first find these cases of gay men with um, a rare form of pneumonia and a rare cancer in the summer of 1981. And they started to put this together and to theorize that there's a common cause um, behind these conditions. <clears throat> and by the end of 1982, they dubbed this AIDS, um, and then in 83 and 84, uh, through various kinds of research, both in the U.S. and in France, they discover the virus that we now call HIV um, that causes AIDS. Uh, so, so this is all emerging, you know, roughly between 1981 um, and, and, and about 1984. It, it's emerging in the public sphere through media conversations in um, sort of, um in sort of uh, 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 in, in 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 a few fits, uh, where it comes up precisely uh, or to be more precise, um, in 83, there's a sort of scare with blood banks um hmm. fear about blood transfusions and coverage sort of spikes there in the mid1980s um, uh, Rock Hudson uh, <laughs> sorry comes out. And and reveals that he has AIDS. That sort of sparks media coverage again in mm-hmm. the 1980s. But it is important to remember when we think about this that it's not really until the mid to late 1980s that you really see a robust national discussion of the AIDS crisis. So even though you know scientists are first talking about it in the early 1980s, it doesn't really find um, a lot of national attention until
0: 1985 and forward. Okay. So how did? Uh, particularly Protestant religious uh, leaders confront AIDS initially, and I, I'll note here uh, that the first two chapters uh, pretty heavily focus on what you refer to as mainline uh, Protestants. Uh, can you uh, ad- define that term for us, and then talk about how um, they confronted AIDS?
1: Sure. So when we talk about mainline Protestants, we mean um, Protestants within the mainline denominations, the United Methodist Church, Episcopalians. Uh, the Presbyterian Church USA, um, Mainline Baptists, and others who we usually distinguish from evangelical Christians. And this isn't a hard distinction, um, and it has to do, in in the way that we talk about it in the 1980s and 1990s, both often with the way that people approach the status of the Bible, whether they think of the Bible as inerrant and as normative in their life, whether they have um, an idea that having a born-again experience is particularly important to their religious identity. That's something that people on the more evangelical side would identify with. People on the mainline side would, would probably be more likely to say that the Bible is an important ethical and historical document but needs to be interpreted in its contemporary contexts. Um, but this isn't a, this isn't a hard the right. divisions, and certainly within mainline denominations like the like the United Methodist Church, there is a split between people who are more on the sort of what we might call the liberal or modernist side, and people who are more on the evangelical side. This sometimes, and increasingly in the 80s and 90s, maps onto political conservatism and progressivism. Okay, right. So it's that people in the mainline tend to be more moderate or liberal. People who identify as evangelical are more likely to be uh, politically conservative um, if they're white. If they're African-American, they sort of cut down the middle in a different way where um, African-American evangelical Protestants tend to be a little bit more conservative in regards to issues of sexual morality, but more progressive in regards to issues of economics and racial justice. Um, So these groups really start talking about the AIDS crisis uh, in the early to mid-1980s. And at the denominational level, denominational leaders tend usually to be more liberal or moderate than the average person within a denomination um, and they, the main line tends to call for care and compassion for people with HIV and AIDS. Uh, they call for funding, they call for government intervention, especially in, dis, in discrimination against people with HIV and AIDS. Uh, and then, evangelical denominations and leaders also very much, uh, very commonly call for care and compassion, but they more commonly also tie the crisis to sexual immorality and so they usually make a note in in even sort of official denominational statements that although we should have care and compassion um, we also need to realize that this is an epidemic that, in, 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 in the words that, that they might use, that, that that is spread through sexual immorality. So immorality becomes tied to the way that the epidemic is created and spread from the very beginning within a number of evangelical groups.
0: And is this, uh, does this rhetoric carry on past the long 1980s? Um, are, are, we still, uh, are we still living with this rhetoric or does it uh, morph and trend uh, and, and, and shift in the 1990s and early 2000s?
1: That's a very good question. So I, I call the I call I use the long nineteen eighties to, to sort of call uh, to, to describe this period that stretches, I think, at least to the mid-1990s. Mm-hmm. And what happens in the mid-90s is uh, there are advances in the medical treatment of HIV that that really do make HIV a livable chronic condition. Okay. Right. So for people who are able to gain access to uh, medicines to antiretroviral therapy um, to the AIDS cocktail, uh, 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 they are able to live long lives um, that are relatively normal. And as advances have become even better within these medicines um, and the side effects have decreased, it is increasingly something that is a, li- a, a livable chronic condition rather than something that would immediately you know, result in um, death. Um, I think that you do see a, a shift in the way that people talk about the AIDS crisis in general after the 1990s, such that when most people talk about AIDS after the 1990s, they think of AIDS in Sub-Saharan Africa. okay, And they think of it as an epidemic of poverty and as an epidemic of, of heterosexuality. And there's a lot less attention given to AIDS among mostly gay men in the U.S. Now, of course, AIDS continues to be of concern or at least the spread of HIV continues to be a concern for men who sleep with men in the U S um, but also increasingly for racial minorities in the U S both in urban areas and in rural parts of the country, especially for black women, um, uh, 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 who become some of the, the sort of highest growing, um, parts of the population where rates of HIV infection have been highest. So in many parts of America, this remains a crisis, Mm -hmm much of the public health and national conversation has moved to the international AIDS crisis and concern about AIDS in sub-Saharan Africa. Right. So when evangelicals really do start becoming interested in talking about AIDS in the early two thousands, it's, it's, it's as part of a movement to fight AIDS in the global South. Okay. Right. And as an African epidemic, mostly. Um, and, uh, there's kind of a loss of interest in, in, in tying AIDS to gay men in that sense. Um, so in some ways, the rhetoric just changes of the AIDS crisis in general. Now, does that mean the moralism has changed? I don't think so. Okay. I, I think that's still there. Um, but the broader discussion has moved to the idea that AIDS is an epidemic of poverty and an epidemic of heterosexuality in Africa.
0: Interesting. So um, to get into some of the – you have, I think, three sort of clear case studies uh, that I want to talk about broadly. Um, And the first would be C. uh, Everett Koop, the Surgeon General uh, of the United States during the Reagan administration. And as your chronology has laid out, uh, AIDS becomes uh, – well, AIDS becomes a a known disease um, during the Reagan administration and then, of course, becomes a political and moral problem. Um, for the U.S. during the Reagan administration. So Coop uh, was central to this. Um, tell us who he was, his background, um, and how he dealt with uh, HIV, the HIV-AIDS crisis.
1: Yeah, so Coop is a really interesting figure um, in modern American history. He was a pediatric surgeon in Philadelphia for most of his life and um, became known within evangelical communities in the 1970s for his work with Francis Schaeffer in the formation of the pro-life movement. Um, But he was a well-regarded surgeon and also this well-regarded political activist within evangelical groups that very much got conservative evangelicals involved with the pro-life movement in the late 1970s. He was appointed by Reagan um, in large measure for his pro-life stance. I mean, he was a sort of... uh, a gift to the evangelical conservative supporters who helped Reagan get into office, um, in that election. And when he was uh, appointed, there, there, was already a controversy around Coop because he didn't come out of a public health background. Okay. And so there was worry that he, that he wasn't really fit for this position. Um, uh, but he had a lot of support from his conservative base and from evangelicals in particular. Um, so he becomes surgeon general and he actually winds up being very good at this job. Some of his early work focused on, um, tobacco. And he was, uh, you know, a very huge supponent, sorry, a very huge supporter of having warnings about tobacco use and the cancer risks involved. Um, he had no qualms about taking on big tobacco. Um, and he also became a notable defender of the rights of children with disabilities. Um, uh, which in many, in many ways is an extension of his pro-life work yeah. as well. He becomes involved in AIDS work in the mid-1980s. So at, at least the way that he describes it is he was more or less shut off from talking about AIDS for the first four or five years of the crisis, where there were other people within the Reagan administration who were tasked with, with talking about the AIDS crisis. Um, when and he, those
0: people were particularly conservative, correct? Correct.
1: They were conservatives, yes. So like Gary Bauer and William Bennett who were White House aides who were really um, essential in crafting a very conservative response to the AIDS crisis that really highlighted the importance of returning to heterosexuality and heterosexual norms for sexual culture. And they really very much opposed any discussions of AIDS that talked about its context in regard to gay or gay gay or lesbian issues. So, so so, their focus was really on abstinence and on heterosexual marriage. Okay. When Coop became involved, he did a lot of research on AIDS and, and winds up publishing a report in 1986 that drew a lot of attention because he really did resist taking the kind of moralistic conservative stance that people like Bennett and Bauer took. And one of the things that he did that surprised a lot of liberals and shocked a lot of conservatives was that he called for sex education. And in his words, he called for it at the earliest age possible. Now, when he said this at a press conference and in the report, he meant you know age-appropriate education about bodies, about biology and sex um, in elementary school, and then as it became more appropriate into middle school and high school, talking about sex itself right. and for him very much concerned with the dangers of sex and he was interested in convincing younger people to hold off on having sex until they're married but would say you know if you're not going to have sex uh sorry if you're not going to wait to have sex then at least use condoms this was picked up by conservatives um, who sort of went, went wild with it so phyllis schlafly for instance you know uh, famously re- remarked that that Koop was was calling for us to teach sodomy to third graders, Think, things like this, you know, really mm-hmm. inflammatory rhetoric that took out of context much of what Koop said. But this call for what today we might call comprehensive sex education by this conservative evangelical search in general was seen as quite surprising for the time. And so many liberal groups and gay rights groups really um, were pleasantly surprised with Koop's adamant uh, approach to, to talking about sex ed um, in ways that that, that realize the importance of using condoms and Coop sort of famously said that he's the surgeon general for heterosexuals and for homo s- homosexuals alike um, and sort of uh, repeated that mantra throughout his time in his post
0: and he also um, sent out a, a mailer can you can you tell us about the mailer since um, this was as you put it one of the first times that there's sort of a national information campaign around sex.
1: Yes, so the government had been involved in other kinds of sex education campaigns largely around venereal diseases in the military in in the early 1900s. But um, Coop was asked to create a trimmed down version of this report uh, that becomes the basis for a pamphlet called Understanding AIDS. Uh, that's very short, but a very interesting pamphlet um, that was released in 1988 and mailed to virtually every family in the U.S., which, which, which would have made it at that time the largest public mailing having to do with anything regarding sexuality or public health. Um, and also the sort of biggest effort of the government to really teach Americans about sex and sexuality and so the pamphlet featured discussion about the use of condoms, about anal sex and oral sex. I mean, things that you know many conservatives were saying. You know, this is this is wild for the to have the government send a pamphlet to people's houses talking about oral and anal sex and the use of condoms. They thought this was simply scandalous. And so in the book, I even include a few political cartoons that were sort of making fun of some of the of, of this response. So one of them has an older couple um, who are represented in sort of like overall sort of very country and they go um, and they check the mail and um, the wife is passed out on the ground and then the husband is there and he says, oh, Coop's pamphlet must have come in. <laughs> In the Mail today <laughs> to sort of represent in some ways how quite radical this act was for the government to be taking on this role to teach others about um, about AIDS and about sex. The pamphlet uh, I try to make the case, and, and I'm pulling on the work of other scholars of AIDS like Paula Truikler. The pamphlet isn't in any ways, you know, what we would call sex positive, right? It's not. So you know, it's not an extension of gay. Um, activism that's really teaching people about, you know, the ins and outs of oral or anal sex. And in many ways, if you look at the images on the pamphlet of the people who might be affected by AIDS, there's no one who visibly looks like they might be gay or queer. There is a guy in a construction hat that some say, you know, maybe is, um in a stretch, a reference to the um the the village the village of people, or something like that, uh, but I don't think that was the intent, but it was the idea that anyone can get aids right? okay that's the problem for all americans
0: um so and and uh, we won't go into too much uh, detail about this, but you do sort of flip uh this idea that Coop was uh sort of liberal and not moralist in his in his approach. You do sort of flip that towards uh the end of 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 the chapter, so I just want to note that. Uh, for 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 readers, um, the final two chapters, uh, not including the afterward, uh, are sort of moving to the Catholic Church. Um, so you've uh, talked about uh, the mainline Protestant response generally. Um, now, what is it about uh, the Catholics and why do you make this turn to the Catholics in the, the latter two chapters? And I should also note, this is also a pretty hard turn towards thinking about uh, HIV AIDS in New York City.
1: Yeah. So, I when I started writing the book,
0: um,
1: I was originally interested in progressive responses to the AIDS crisis, and very quickly realized that there's been very little work done on religious responses in general to the AIDS crisis. And I became important, or sorry, and I became interested early on in looking at um, a sort of mainstream response to the AIDS crisis. So, you know, we have reports about the far religious right, people like Jerry Falwell, who called it, you know, um, God's wrath on people for immorality. And I was really interested in sort of surveying the sort of broader scope of responses. So in the first two chapters, I'm looking largely at mainline and evangelical Protestants. Um, but I also wanted to talk about uh, various kinds of Catholic responses to the AIDS crisis, and particularly the responses of the Catholic hierarchy in the U.S., Now, uh, the Roman Catholic Church is the largest Christian denomination in the U.S., and so Catholics um, have both a demographic stake in thinking about the AIDS crisis, and the bishops uh, released two statements about the AIDS crisis in the 1980s that really was calling on the Roman Catholic Church to have an organized response to thinking about AIDS. And I focus here as a way of sort of getting into discussions of the Catholic hierarchy and and various Catholic responses, I I tried to get into it by looking at what was was going on with the Archdiocese of New York, uh, which is the seat of Cardinal O'Connor, who was one of the most important bishops within the American Catholic church. Um, um, Appointed by the Vatican, uh, the Archdiocese of New York is one of the most important, both symbolically, um, and materially uh, di- 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 uh, sorry, diocese in the U.S. And so um, it's a very important post. And O'Connor is very much um, a representative of the more conservative or orthodox wing of the church hierarchy. And so you see, especially coming out of the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s, um, you, you see Catholics uh, within, the hierarchy, within the hierarchy shoring up the authority of the bishops, And um, especially in the 70s and 80s, you see bishops who are more orthodox accelerating in these positions of power. And so in some ways, you see a bit of a split between more moderate bishops like Cardinal Bernardine in Chicago, who calls for what he terms a consistent ethic of life. That Mm -hmm. is to say the idea that Catholics should be concerned for all life from the unborn to um, the person at the end of their life and this would include opposition to the death <laughs> penalty as well as things like abortion. What you see in the 70s and 80s, especially in response to Roe v. Wade, is a number of bishops, both in the American church and in the Vatican, really highlighting the the need to fight against um, the abortion movement. Right, So really joining this pro-life movement and in many ways elevating the issue of abortion to the issue that the church is concerned about. And they increasingly are representing a more conservative and orthodox wing of the American bishops. And so O'Connor really represents that side of the bishop's response. And we see this play out in the way that the bishops respond to the AIDS crisis. They initially respond with a statement called the Many Faces of AIDS released in 1987 um, that was written by a group, but a group that included Bernardine, that called for care and compassion, that called for thinking about the crisis within the context of Catholic theologies of sexuality, which which certainly think of homosexuality as being sinful, and certainly call for for people with HIV to abstain from having sex. But it does mention that in cases where people are clearly not going to abstain and are going to continue to have sex— then some education about the use of condoms might be allowable in these cases as a sort of lesser of two evils, right? So it was seen at the time as a kind of moderate response that the bishops were making, right? That, you know, all things equal, there might be a need for education, but we should really think about this in the context of the church's teachings on sex. This sparked a huge outcry from the conservative wing of the church. Right, By 1989, they release a new statement called called to compassion that represents really a much more absolutist turn towards respecting the Catholic Orthodox position on this, which says that, you know, contraception is always wrong. Um, homosexual sex is always wrong. You can never teach about the use of condoms. This has no place within Catholic churches um, teaching on AIDS. And the Archdiocese of New York, um, led by O'Connor, which was one of the main spokespersons in this more orthodox position, um, becomes a sort of test case for this, partly because it's one of the most um, important sites for the AIDS crisis. There are so many gay men in New York who who are dying of AIDS at, at this time. And they look at the Archdiocese of New York and see um, its leader saying that the church cannot speak about the use of condoms, and indeed uh, pushing the city itself not to be part of this broader sex education endeavor. And on top of all this, Cardinal O'Connor is appointed to the Presidential Commission on AIDS. So Mm -hmm. he becomes one of the people who's trying to advise the White House on how it should re, should respond to, to AIDS. So all of this sort of comes together to make the Archdiocese this really important sort of case study for thinking about Catholic positions regarding the AIDS crisis.
0: And it also makes the Archdiocese a, a, a site of protest for uh, protests against uh, or from uh, gay and lesbian activists um, who are um, really concerned and really troubled, many of whom were, uh, would, of course, have been uh, Catholics growing up concerned about the position that the church is taking. So, can you tell us about um the specific uh, act of protest uh which has generally been described as uh a secular protest uh and an aggressively um and so some might even say horribly secular protest uh but that you are calling a religious protest?
1: <laughs> well, I don't know if I'm calling it a religious protest. You're but are something. <laughs> right that way. Um, so the last chapter looks at this demonstration called Stop the Church, which was organized by two activist groups, by WAM, which was a feminist activist group, and by ACT-UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, the New York chapter, uh, which was a group of AIDS activists, as, as they defined themselves, united in anger to fight the AIDS crisis. Because of the symbolic and very real material power of the Archdiocese of New York and because O'Connor was so outspoken in his opposition both to abortion rights um, and to uh, education regarding um, condom use, uh, uh, the, the Archdiocese became a sort of focal point for a number of activists in this period. Right, and so they organized this demonstration at St. Patrick's Cathedral, which is the seat of the archdiocese on Fifth Avenue. It's you know, so it has a symbolic, a very symbolic location. Um, the protest draws upwards of forty-five hundred protesters pro marching in the street to critique the Catholic Church's opposition to any sort of of education regarding sex that would, in in their terms, at least be responsible and would teach responsibly about the use of condoms. um, And that would take a more responsible position in their eyes towards uh, the ability for women to have um, choices over their bodies in terms of reproduction and abortion. So um, a a small group of protesters actually enter St. Patrick's cathedral and sort of stage a protest within inside the church itself. Um, And at least in reports of this protest, one activist uh, takes a communion wafer and he crumbles it and lets it fall to the floor in a sort of protest, in a sort of ultimate protest of the church's position. That singular act um, becomes the most, perhaps the most highlighted act in media coverage of this event, and which 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 quickly turns towards referring to it as. Being anti-Catholic as being sacrilegious, right? As as these secular AIDS activists sort of stomping on the rights of Catholics to have their own beliefs, I try to open up the various ways of interpreting this protest in that chapter um, by by looking uh, at, at both the concerns that a number of these AIDS activists had in protesting the church's positions. They were very worried, in fact, that they would be seen as trampling on the rights of individual Catholics. But they also thought that the Catholic Church itself was very involved in uh, politics at the time. So this is coming off of a 19, in in uh, 1985 and 1986. The church, the the, the archdiocese, had, all, had also been very active in fighting against uh, anti-discrimination protections for gays and lesbians. They'd been very active in fighting against uh, uh, local efforts to teach about safe sex. And so they saw the church is already involved in politics and they said, you know, look, if the church is already involved in politics, it it, it, it it has to be welcomed as a site for political protest. The church isn't off limits to protest when it already involves itself in these kinds of political struggles. So I try, in the course of the chapter, to actually see how a number of activists with WAM and ACT UP are are not only protesting the church hierarchy in Cardinal O'Connor, but are also in the course of those protests trying to reclaim religious symbols for their own side. And so you see this in a number of ways. You see this in protesters dressing up as Jesus and sort of marching through the streets and talking about the need to teach about safe sex and how it's something that Jesus would have done. This is drawing on a long history of liberation theology arguments about um, Jesus and, and, the, and, and the idea that the church should be standing up for those who are suffering or those who are most in need. Uh, but you also see um, these interesting posters that were made at the time that represent Jesus as an ACT UP activist um, who, who is actually in, in one of these, he's, he's holding up a condom, so it presents Jesus as a safe sex um, cater And another depicts um, Jesus driving a stake into Cardinal O'Connor, who is depicted with the horns of a devil. Um, and I include both of these images in the book. They're very interesting. They're very symbolically rich. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm just trying to think about the ways that this isn't in any easy sense, a secular protest against the church that the activists saw the church as already engaged in secular politics, mm. that many of these activists themselves had very strong religious and even Catholic leanings. Um, and they were very interested in using religious symbols and sort of taking the religious symbols owned by the church and using them for their own terms.
0: So, um, and I, I would really recommend that, uh, that listeners read that chapter. It's, it's uh, really fascinating uh, with also, I think, a bit of a surprise at the end about what little we know about the person uh, who did uh, crumble the uh, the communion wafer. Um, so by way of conclusion, uh, your afterword, I think, um, picks up on a through line throughout, uh, throughout the book, uh, which is that there's a sort of uh, conservatism around uh, sexual practice. So not necessarily a conservatism, uh, 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 not necessarily a political conservatism, but the conservatism around um, sexual practice that is kind of adopted by um, people who might identify as political conservatives, but also people who might identify as liberals and progressives um, and uh, a sexual conservatism that is a- also taken up by certain uh, gay and lesbian uh, activists. Um, you connect that to the real hard the, to the hard turn towards marriage as the site of uh, LGBT rights. Can you talk us through that, sort of how you bring that up to the present?
1: Yes, certainly. So I think for a lot of our students, for example, um, today when they think of what a liberal position on sexuality is, they think of it as being in support of gay marriage. But if we look more historically at gay lesbian activism and at AIDS activism. Um, we see a number of, of of goals, marriage being one among them, but a number of goals that a number of these activists have. And so if you look at activist groups like Act Up, they were very interested in ideas of sexual freedom, an idea that sexual freedom means a number of things. It means, you know, not only something like, the ability to marry someone of the same sex, which at that time really wasn't a major national goal. People didn't even really quite see it as possible, but also the idea that that people could have all sorts of sex and that that should be welcome. So you have activists like Douglas Kremp, who's an art, art historian, wrote um, a really fascinating essay that, that came out in October magazine, in, I think, 1989 called How to Have Promiscuity in an Epidemic, where he's really thinking about the idea of promiscuity itself as an asset for um, gay men and thinking about the ethics of sex and the way that people can create ideas of care and, and responsibility that aren't limited to sexual monogamy. And so in The Height of the AIDS Crisis, you see even among gay and AIDS activists Um, different kind of blocks forming where some are really critiquing gay men for having promiscuous sex um, or for having many sexual partners and then others that are saying look it's not about promiscuity um, it's about the kinds of sexual practices that transmit HIV right so one of the arguments that you see coming out of more what we might call sex positive forms of AIDS work is that it doesn't matter how many partners you have it matters what kinds of practices you engage in their likelihood of trans of transmitting HIV. So if you're having um, vaginal or anal sex without a condom, there is a higher chance of transmitting the virus than if you're having, you know, oral sex or you know, or or you know, ha, you know, having other kinds of sexual practices like hand jobs or something with many many sexual partners. So the chances of contracting HIV from even having you know one sexual partner if you're having anal or vaginal sex is higher than giving hand jobs to a thousand different men. Right. Right. It's not about the number of partners you have. It's about what kinds of acts you're engaged in and whether you're using condoms or not. Right. But
0: that doesn't quite fit the, the sort of moral prescriptions. Exactly. So you see this overarching
1: morality that is really saying no sex should be monogamous. It should be tied to a relationship of romantic love. Um, and you really do see this emerging, especially in the 1990s. And one of the things you see among, um, among a number of, 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 of people working within AIDS work and gay and lesbian politics it, it is a narrative of the AIDS crisis as a time of growing up for gay men, right? Where, you know, they have... The moment in the 70s where they're involved in, you know, all this sort of radical sex and clubs and, and all this stuff. In the 80s is the moment when they grow up, they come out of this sort of sexual adolescence and become responsible adults who settle down into monogamous long-term relationships, right? So that's one of the narratives that come out of it um, on the more conservative side. And then you have people like Douglas Crimp and and the members of, of ACT UP and Queer Nation who are saying, you know, look, like – we need to reject this narrative of growing up, and to actually think about, you know, responsible forms of sexual education, and think about sex as something that can be good, but that we need to think about um, in a number of more complicated ways. That's that's about more than simply settling down into monogamous marriage. Of course, historically, we know that this push for marriage um, becomes far more popular and becomes, you know, the major national platform for mainstream gay rights groups in the 1990s and the early 2000s, and then, of course, is eventually successful. What I'm interested in showing in the afterword is how um, even in in 2014, uh, monogamy, gay monogamy becomes one of the tools that a major AIDS healthcare organization uses to argue for the fight against HIV and AIDS, that one of the answers to fighting against the spread of HIV is gay marriage itself. Um, which I, I think if we look at it historically, that's a far cry from the kinds of activist work that groups like ACT UP were doing when they were really trying to promote education and, 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 and the use of condoms and the, avail- the availability of condoms um, within a broader rhetoric of sex being a good and positive thing rather than something that we should tuck away into the sort of private sphere of a monogamous marriage.
0: So would you then say that uh, groups like ACT UP ultimately failed in, in their objectives or is that too harsh a reading?
1: Yeah, I mean, they were certainly they certainly succeeded in putting a lot of this work on the map. Um, I, I think, in some ways, this this sort of radical side of queer or AIDS politics, um, it, 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 it was never going to be easy to make that into a national movement, right? right? And and one of the the arguments I make in the book that's drawing from work on the history of marriage by people like Nancy Cott and Rebecca Davis is really thinking about how there is a very powerful push throughout American history towards monogamy and towards the institution of marriage. I mean, this is what feminists are critiquing this in the 60s as a conservative movement, right? You know, when you have queer activists in the 70s and 80s, they're critiquing marriage as a conservative movement. And yet over time, as gays and lesbians become respectable and become part of the American mainstream, they are assimilated into the institution of marriage, right? So this was never going to be an easy battle for um, activists like ACT UP. I do think it's interesting, though, that there seems to be a resurgence in interest um for groups like Act Up. And I should say Act Up is still in existence. It doesn't have the same sort of presence that it did in the nineteen eighties and the nineteen nineties, of course. But there are a series of documentaries that come out um, in the last few years right. like How to Survive a Plague and United in Anger. And I think younger people s- students today are in many ways quite interested in this history, but know very little about it. Okay. Um, so I think it's it's interesting that there at a moment where more historians are thinking about the history of AIDS in the U S in the eighties and nineties. And there's a cultural moment where these kinds of documentaries are being made now to think about this movement. And it will be interesting to see where that fits with the future of gay politics, especially now that marriage is legal. Right.
0: Right. So I guess this is a good time to ask, and this will be our final question. Um, Now that uh, this book, uh, now that you've uh, written this book, it's, it's uh, published. Um, what are you working on now? Are you still working on HIV AIDS or are you moving on to different different topics?
1: I, I thought I was going to move on to different topics, but I, I find that there's so much to talk about with religion and the AIDS crisis that I keep being drawn back into it. I'm working on this project now that I'm sort of tentatively calling the Queer Arts of American Religion, where I'm looking at uh, feminist and queer um, artists and performance artists that have used different kinds of religious rituals and symbols in their work since the 1960s. And a lot of this comes out of my interest in artists working especially in the 1980s um, during the height of the AIDS crisis who are really using their work to think about issues of salvation and suffering um, in, in ways uh, to imagine alternative kinds of living, um, utopian ideals of what it would mean to live in a different kind of world, but art that's really pushing these boundaries. One of the most famous pieces of art um, that comes out of this, this history, of course, is Serrano's Piss Christ, which is um, an, an image of a crucifix that is submerged in urine. And it was the site of a lot of controversy um, especially by conservative politicians, and just sort of you know becomes one of those moments of the culture wars that gets a lot of traction. Right. Um, but he, of course, is operating as someone with you know in some ways a difficult relationship to the Catholic Church, but thinking of his work as very much interested in a Catholic idea of the incarnational Jesus, right? The idea that Jesus is fully human, which means thinking of bodily fluids and the idea of suffering. As part of the Catholic movement, right, that 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 thinking of Jesus as fully incarnational means thinking about what it would mean for someone like Jesus to have AIDS. And so you get you know, people thinking about what does it mean to think of Jesus as having AIDS or what would an AIDS theology look like? Right. And you see all these artists who are sort of experimenting with different kinds of religious symbols and rituals in their own work in ways that I think is just fascinating. So, so that's where I have been sort of moving lately.
0: Well, to me that sounds fascinating as well. So I'm looking forward to uh, reading some early cuts of that. Make sure you get them to me first. Um, <laughs> so Anthony, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Thank you for uh, taking time out of your, out of your schedule. Um, and uh, to everybody else, we will uh, we will see you soon.